Let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for our time together. We thank you for the book of Revelation that you've given to us so that we may know the future, that we may know your promises are sure and true. And I pray, Lord, that as we look at your word today, that you would help us to understand and to live accordingly in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you look at last time you, on your handout, we were looking at the day of the Lord, and we had finished that. And I want to do these eschatology terms. By the way, this is going to be the last PowerPoint that you have for the book of Revelation. So either today or next time we will be finishing the book of Revelation. We went all the way through it. But last time we talked about the day of the Lord. I wanted to give you a robust understanding of the day of the Lord because that term is so prevalently used in both the Old and the New Testament. And so we distinguish between the broad day of the Lord and the narrow day of the Lord. Why? Because I think the Bible does. The broad day of the Lord is a time period that's going to come about imminently. There's no precursors that will tip you off as to when it comes. The broad day of the Lord, as it suggests, the the very description of it, begins at the 70th week of Daniel, but it extends through eternity. It'll always be the salvation of God's people and the judgment of God's enemies that occur during that time period. The narrow day of the Lord, if you look on your handout is that narrow 24-hour day period in which the Messiah comes and fights against the enemies that surround Jerusalem that culminates from the battle of Armageddon. Now, there are precursors before that. Namely, you have Elijah who prophesies as one of the two eyewitnesses in the last three and a half years. But you also have cosmic disturbances that will tip you off, as Joel said in Joel chapter 2. So, Broad day of the Lord, no warning, beginning at 70th week. Narrow day of the Lord, the end of the 70th week, there are warnings and precursors. That's what I wanted you to see. Now, the last thing we have to talk about then is the timing of the rapture. That's what I want to hit. The rapture, of course, is us being caught away to meet the Lord in the air. And I want to talk about the various views regarding the rapture. Now, as you turn your handout to that page regarding the rapture, One interesting thing about it is many people today are denying that the rapture will occur. I looked at a website just last night. The United Church of Christ denies that the rapture will occur. Um, I've talked to people in our evangelical circles who say, well, I just think that that's made up. It's made up by Tim LaHaye and the uh, guys who wrote the Left Behind series. But what I want you to understand is, no, the doctrine of the rapture is biblical. The term rapture itself, rapturo, comes from the Latin Vulgate, but the term harpazo is a Greek term that's used in 1 Thessalonians 4. So what I want to do is begin, let's look at the data and just ground ourselves in seeing that, yes, the doctrine of the rapture is biblical. Let's begin there. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18. So we'll just start there. And I've got all my notes on my screen, so sometimes I'll use that and sometimes I'll use my Bible. But I'll have you turn to these various texts. So again, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18. Now as you're turning there, remember, one of the big points of contention at Thessalonica was the fact that you had false teachers who were claiming that the day of the Lord had already arrived. So here Paul is giving description of the day of the Lord, in particular the rapture. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18. Notice in verse 16, Paul says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. 
Now, let me just stop there for a moment. Notice here in verse 16, it says, for the Lord himself. One thing I learned when I was learning Greek grammar in seminary was that this is what's called an adjectival intensive. And the only reason I point that out where it says the Lord himself, I think it's very beautiful. Because here the Lord Jesus is not simply sending a surrogate or an angel on his behalf, but he's coming bodily. Okay? Now, as I say that, I'm not claiming that angels won't accompany him. In fact, I believe that they will. There's other passages that allude to this. But Jesus here is making this very personal. He himself is coming for his people. He's not just leaving it for some surrogate to send. So the Lord himself is going to descend. And notice here, the dead in Christ will rise first. That is certainly a physical resurrection. So those who have died and they're believers, they're going to be raised up first. But then notice in verse 17, he says, then we who are alive, and he's talking about believers, and remain will be caught up together. Stop right there. Notice the caught up together. And it's to meet the Lord in the air, of course. Caught up together is the term harpazo. That's where you get the term snatched away. In fact, that's what harpazo means. It means to be snatched, or as it is rendered here in the New American Standard Bible, to be caught up. Now, some people will say, well, the doctrine of the rapture isn't taught because the term rapture isn't used. Well, that's silly. It's like saying the doctrine of the Trinity, or the Trinity isn't true because the term Trinity isn't used in the Bible. Well, the doctrine of the Trinity is certainly true because the concept is taught. So just because rapturo is a Latin word, the concept is being taught here through harpazo, which means to be caught up. In fact, let me give you some parallel passages in which harpazo is used. One that's interesting, it's used 14 times in the New Testament. One that's particularly interesting, I think, is 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Now, why is that interesting? Because there, remember, Paul was caught up to paradise, and he was shown revelations. Remember that? So in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, it's used of Paul being snatched away. Um, It's also used for Christ's ascension in Revelation chapter 12, verse 5. So in Revelation 12, 5, at Jesus' ascension, he was caught away. It's also used, remember, Bob was teaching us in Acts uh, chapter 8, where Philip, remember, he had been baptizing the Ethiopian eunuch, and then he was snatched away. There's our term harpazo again. Now, the only reason I'm giving you those other passages is you can see that the term fits very nicely for being either caught up or snatched away. Well, that's exactly why Paul is using it. He's using it because all believers will be caught up to meet the Lord. Now, where are we going to meet him? Notice it says... We will meet him in the clouds, it says, to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So notice the end result of the rapture is that we will always be with the Lord. Let me tie this for a moment to the term parousia. Remember, I labored at length to tell you that the term parousia is synonymous with the coming of the Lord. And it's also synonymous with the last seven years, the 70th week of Daniel. Well, very interesting, if you look at the root understanding of parousia, it has to do with coming, but always with presence. Well, I think that fits very nicely with the rapture. Why? Because the moment you're raptured, you're always with the Lord. So whether you're in heaven or whether you come down after the 70th week is over and you're in the millennial kingdom, you're still with the Lord. 
So as soon as the rapture occurs, you're going to be given a resurrected body. And so whether you're in heaven in the beginning or the seven years transpires and you end up being on the earth once again. Remember Revelation 5.10 promises, it says they shall reign upon the earth. The point is you're always going to be with the Lord. Never to have to fret for your salvation, for your safety. You're always going to be with him. That's the great promise. Yes, Eric. Yeah, I have a question. I think I know the answer, but I'm going to just ask this as yeah. a question. Um, we are, our, when we die, okay, our spirit goes to be with Jesus Christ at that time, our spirit. Absolutely. And then at the rapture is when our bodies are then resurrected or, or taken Absolutely. up. Yep. So, so spiritually, in, in our spirit, we will be with the Lord immediately when we die. Absolutely. 2 Corinthians 5, 8, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. So as soon as a, a believer dies, their body goes into the ground, as it were, or there's a separation of body and soul. So their soul goes to be with the Lord. Now, for the unbeliever, it goes to Hades, a place of te- temporal torment awaiting the white throne judgment. But that's what occurs. Absolutely. So... Death is separation. It's never depicted in the Bible as annihilation. And that's very important. For example, we see in 2 Thessalonians 1, this idea of eternal destruction. Some people have latched onto that term destruction, and they say, aha, you cease to exist. They're annihilationists. The problem with that is the Bible never sees destruction or death as annihilation, but separation. So think about it. I always like to use the analogy of a car accident If you say two cars are destroyed in a a car accident, you don't say that they are annihilated. They just don't function properly, okay? Well, in the same way, destruction eternally in the lake of fire doesn't mean someone's going to be annihilated. It means they're going to suffer forever. But you're absolutely right. Separation of body and soul. So as soon as a believer dies, they go to be with the Lord. But remember, God has created us physical beings. So optimally, he doesn't want us just in the spirit realm He wants us also united back to our bodies. And that's what will occur at the rapture. The rapture is the resurrection for the saints. Now, one of the questions I think is often asked is, well, why is this such a sudden doctrine that seems to be taught in the New Testament? Well, I don't think it's so sudden at all. In fact, I think New Testament eschatology is taught in the Old Testament, particularly in Isaiah 26 through 27. And I want to turn there again, because what I want you to see, we won't read all of it, but I want you to see that through Isaiah 26 through 27, you basically get the outline of a rapture, hiding people from the wrath of God, and the subsequent coming of the kingdom. So let's begin. i got to turn my Bible there too. We'll turn to Isaiah 26. Let's start in verse 16. Isaiah 26, 16. Now, in this section of Isaiah, this section is called the little apocalypse by scholars. Why? Because it's very similar to the apocalypse of John and Revelation. You get a lot of the same data. But notice here you have this promise that God is going to do what the people couldn't do for themselves. Notice here in verse 16 of Isaiah 26, The cry of the people is, O Yahweh, in distress, they sought you. This is Isaiah speaking on their behalf. They poured out a whispered prayer when your discipline was upon them. Now stop there for a moment. Why was the discipline of the Lord upon them? Because of their unbelief and accompanied 
accompanying their unbelief was their disobedience. Remember, faith and obedience always go hand in hand. The reason people disobey is because they don't believe. All right, so that's why his judgment came upon them. That's why he sent the Assyrians upon them. That's why he sent them into Babylonian captivity in 605 B.C., again in 586 B.C. Before that, again, it was another deportation in 597. So that's the discipline of the Lord. Notice verse 17. It says, like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pangs when she is near to giving birth, so are we because of you, O Lord. So notice here, the imagery of the labor pains. Again, the labor pains, as I mentioned, is associated with the day of the Lord. Jesus uses that in his all of a discourse, Matthew 24, 8. Notice verse 18, we were pregnant, we writhed, but we have given birth to the wind. We have accomplished no deliverance in the earth, in the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. So stop there. Notice verse 18, the people of God were impotent to bring salvation. Human beings cannot bring salvation is, is completely an act of God. We often talk about the distinction between monergism and synergism. Synergism is a cooperative work of man and God. But salvation in the Bible is never depicted as a cooperative effort. No, it's monergistic. God alone brings salvation. In fact, if it were left to people or if God needed the help of people, look at what people can do. They can only give birth to the wind. That means it's a futile effort. Now, notice in verse 18, here's the great promise. Or excuse me, verse 19. It says, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is the dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. So this is a reference to the resurrection. And one of the questions people often ask is, well, what is the reference to the dew in verse 19? Well, dew was considered by the Israelites as something that was life-giving. In fact, remember when the Israelites are in the wilderness, God takes care of them not only by sending them manna, but he also sends them life-giving dew. Okay, so dew is life-giving. So there's going to be life. There's going to be a resurrection from the dead. But notice verse 20, the timing of it is indicated. God says, he says, come, my people, enter your chambers. By the way, the term for chambers there is the inner place. It's very similar, I think, to John 14. In my father's house, there are many rooms. Very similar idea. Okay, now notice what he says. Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed by. Interestingly enough, the term fury there can be rendered wrath. So notice the people of God are taken. They're placed in their rooms, as it were, until God's wrath passes by. Well, where is his wrath going to go? Well, verse 21, it says, For behold, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity, and the earth will disclose the blood shed on it and will no more cover its slain. So notice that's a reference to the day of the Lord. I think that's synonymous with what we saw in the 70th week of Daniel. Remember Revelation 3.10. Because you've been faithful to keep my word, I will keep you from the hour of trial that comes upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. That's the same time period that Isaiah predicted God's wrath would be poured out. I think it's synonymous. Notice here in... Oh, I'm sorry. I'm in verse 21. Now, go go to verse... 20, or chapter 27 
I want to just skip down for the sake of time. I want you to see that at the end of chapter 27, what you have is an ingathering into the kingdom of God. So it begins now, we've just read about the rapture, I believe, in the Old Testament, the carrying away of God's people to a place where they're going to be hidden while his wrath runs its course. But begin down in verse 12. This is Isaiah 27, it's all connected. Isaiah 27, 12, it says, In that day, from the river Euphrates to the, the brook of Egypt, the Lord will thresh out the grain, and you will be gleaned one by one, O people of Israel. Verse 13, it says, In that day, a great trumpet will be blown, and those who were lost in the land of Assyria and those who are driven out to the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain in Jerusalem. So notice there in verse 13 that reference to the great trumpet. The great trumpet is going to be blown, and you're going to have inhabitants of Israel they are going to be plucked up from all the nations, and they're going to be gathered again inside the nation of Israel. What's very interesting is that's the end of the 70th week of Daniel. Now, how do we know that? Because Jesus uses that very term in Matthew 24 at the end of the 70th week where he talks about how when the sun comes at the battle of Armageddon, he's going to take all of the inhabitants that were missing from Israel and he's going to bring them together at the sound of the great trumpet. Jesus uses that term great trumpet at the end of the 70th week in his Olivet Discourse. The only time the term great trumpet is used in all of the Old Testament is in Isaiah 27, 13. Again, it's Gadol Shofar. Gadol is great. Shofar is, is the trumpet or the horn. Okay? So my point in showing you this is from Isaiah 26, 19, all the way to 27, 13, you have the same outline of eschatology that you see in the New Testament. The people of God are going to be taken away, hidden from God's wrath. And at the end, there's the establishment of the kingdom that comes to Israel. Yeah, Eric. I just missed something. I want to make sure I get this. Yeah. You were mentioning that the only time in the Old Testament a particular term is used. Yep. And what was that term again? It's together, both Gadol Shofar, the idea of the great trumpet. Great trumpet. A lot of times you'll have great, a lot of times you'll have trumpet or trumpets. But the only time, interestingly, that they're together is in that verse. Now, the reason I say that is certainly Jesus alluding to it then because there's no other passage in the Old Testament where great trumpet is used. And so I think that shows us at the end of the 70th week, Jesus is certainly alluding to that. That's what it is. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, thank you. Exactly. So the point is then in the Old Testament, I think we have a very nice outline of New Testament eschatology. Now, another question regarding the rapture, I think that's probably on a lot of people's minds, is why doesn't John mention the rapture overtly in the book of Revelation? Well, one reason I think that he may not is because he does mention it in one of his writings, namely John 14. I think John 14, verses 1 through 3, is in fact a rapture passage. In fact, turn your Bibles there, if you will. John 14, verses 1 through 3. I think this is certainly a rapture passage. John 14, verses 1 through 3. Now remember, when we turn to John 14, Jesus is comforting his disciples because of his imminent departure at his death, burial, resurrection, and then subsequent ascension on high. So he wants to quench their fears here. And so notice in John 14, 1 through 3, listen to what he says. He says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. 
believe also in me. So stop right there. Notice in verse 1, Jesus is every bit a valid object of faith as the Father is. Why? Well, because he's God. God is the only worthy object of faith. And if Jesus is a worthy object of faith, well, it's a good bet then he's God too. And that's, I think that's another very good proof text we can use with Jehovah Witnesses who show up at the door and deny that Jesus is God. Now, notice he says, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. I think the best rendering is literally rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. Now, stop in verse 2. Notice the reference to the many dwelling places. This is in the Father's house. I believe this is in the New Jerusalem. So Jesus, the great bride, is preparing a place for us in his Father's house. Just like a groom, if he was marrying a, a wife in the days of antiquity in Israel, he would set the bride price, it would be paid, and then after the arrangement was made for the marriage, he would go away to prepare a place for her in his father's house. Well, that's exactly what Jesus does. To me, it's also very moving here that Jesus says, if it were not so, I would have told you. I love that. I often will share that at funerals because to me it's very moving. Jesus Christ, who spoke and created all things out of nothing, says to us that if all you and I were to be is so much fodder in the ground after we die, he'd give it to us straight. But it is true. Jesus' name is at stake with this promise. If it weren't so, I would have told you. So when you believe in the, re- the resurrection, the rapture, and eternal life, you're trusting in the veracity of Christ's words. You're trusting in his character, a God who cannot lie. Now notice verse 3. He says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. Now let's stop there. I want to stop there before we get to the result clause, which is where you see that. Notice he says, if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. The term receive there, paralambano, is something that is very, um, very affectionate. It's the idea of taking someone to oneself. Now, the reason I want to focus on paralambano is because this text is also used in Matthew 24, 4 through 41. Matthew 24, 40 through 41 Do you remember that text in the Olivet Discourse where you have two in the field, one is taken and the other is left? Guess what the term taken is? Paralambano. And to me, because they're two eschatological texts, it's inconceivable that I think they would be used in different ways. Interestingly enough, in Matthew 24, 40 through 41, where it says one is taken, paralambano, and one is left, the term left, aphemi, can often have the, have the connotation of abandonment. So I think clearly in Matthew 24, 40 through 41, it is a reference to the rapture. That at the inception of the 70th week, because remember at Matthew 24, 36, Jesus says begin, regarding the beginning of the 70th week, no one knows. Eight different times or ways he says no one can know the day or the hour. Well, there are going to be some who are left abandoned to judgment and some who are taken for salvation, paralambano. So the idea is that Jesus is saying you're going to be taken to himself. Now, notice the result clause of that. If he's coming to receive you to himself, very personal, notice it's that 
Here's a result clause or purpose clause that where I am, there you may be also. Now, that's exceedingly important for the interpretation of this text. Why? Because Jesus is departing. And he's going to prepare a place for us where? In the Father's house. So in this text, he's not coming to be where we are, but he's coming to get believers so that where he is in the Father's house, we're going to be there also. So this isn't Jesus taking believers and bringing them to the earth. This is Jesus taking believers and bringing them to heaven. Yes, Norm. So what, what you're uh, describing here is, of course, related to the rapture. But the Father's house is not just limited to rapture saints, is it? I mean, ultimately it's going to be Old Testament saints, saints that come through the tribulation. But we would be the first occupants of the house. Is that true? Yeah. You know, Norm, maybe a better way of answering it is to say who are the proper participants in the rapture. And I say it's every believer, Um, whether it's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, whether it's a believer under the new covenant. If you're a believer, uh, you're going to be a participant in that rapture. So think about back in John 8, 56. Remember, Jesus says, Abraham rejoiced when he saw my day. He saw it from afar. He was glad, I think one version says. So in John 8, 56, Abraham is depicted as one who had faith and saw the future work of the Messiah. So broadly speaking, I don't have a diagram for this, but if you can think of Abraham here, and you think of us here in the cross in the middle, Abraham looks forward with faith to the cross. You and I look back with faith So the issue of when the cross happens isn't the issue. The issue is whether we have faith in the Messiah and the promises. So Abraham had the same faith we did. He looked forward. You and I look back. So he's going to be a participant in the rapture as well. Yep. Absolutely. Um, You know what? They're going to be part. Any believer that becomes a believer in the 70th week of Daniel, so within the tribulation period, Remember, we see in Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, that all of those who have been beheaded for their belief are going to be raised up. So that's all part of the first resurrection, okay? Now, what's interesting is that, to me, tells us that there had to be a resurrection before because in Revelation chapter 20, the only people who are being singled out for resurrection are those who have been beheaded for the faith. In other words, there aren't other believers. It's just those who've been beheaded for their testimony in Jesus Christ. So they're not going to be left out. They're going to become participants of this kingdom, and they'll be resurrected as well. And that's part of the first resurrection. So the first resurrection isn't just a chronological issue. It's a qualitative issue, because if you're part of the first resurrection, you don't have part of the second death, as he promises. Yeah, Bob. I was just thinking about Hebrews 11. Oh, yeah. We recently brought, rebroadcasted yep. the Hebrews. Hall of Fame of Faith. And then I, I had to go back and re-edit all of them. So yeah. it's fresh in my mind. Hebrews 11, uh, thinking about the Old Testament. Yeah. Uh, believers. Hebrews 11, um, verse 14. Now those who say such things make it clear they are seeking a homeland. Hmm. Verse that was 14. Verse 15. If they were thinking about where they came from, they would have an opportunity to return. But now they desire a better place. Now, it's talking about 
the Old Testament believers. Amen. Okay? And where is this better place they desire? Yeah. A heavenly one. Wow. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Amen. So it's pretty clear in Hebrews that the great saints of the Old Testament were desiring a heavenly one. Wow. Great reading. So that would... Do I get coffee? Yeah, you get, you get coffee. <laughs> exactly. I, I think you got cold. <laughs> you already All got right. it, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right, thank you. <laughs> yeah, no, excellent. You know, it's interesting, too, in this text, uh, when it talks about Abraham, let's begin. Where does Abraham mentioned here? Yeah, um, if we back up to verse, you know, I think I'm starting to need. 11? I'm sorry, it's, yeah, it's in chapter he, he 11. Hebrews 11a by faith Abraham when he was called. Obedient went out. Yeah, so he went out of this place to receive an inheritance. And uh, notice it says... Not knowing where he was going. Yeah, by faith, in verse 9, he went to live in the land of promises in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Notice in verse 10, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So... The heavenly, just as Bob was saying. What's interesting is Abraham never owned any land in Israel. The only land that he had was the place that he had buried Sarah. So interestingly, he's a sojourner through that land. So his promise, he was looking forward, as Bob was saying, to the same promise as you and I are. Yeah, yeah, Lonnie. Well, I just wanted to make a quick comment. Um, yeah, in history back during the, uh, before Christ, yeah. during the Jewish period, there were... Uh, a lot of Jewish uh, factions or whatever you want to call that would uh, believe in what we would call eschatology, just like, well, like the Jews that were uh, working on the Dead Sea Scrolls. They say that they were, yeah, the Essenes. Yeah, Yeah. they, they were very much heavy into eschatology. Of course, they probably would have believed that both uh, the first advent and the second advent were together, but I, I don't know. But uh, you're, you're right, Lonnie. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I had, had to write some papers on the Dead Sea Scrolls when I was in seminary, and I touched on the Essenes. One of the things that interested me was oftentimes Revelation was always called an apocalyptic uh, form of literature, much like the Essenes wrote. So the idea was. Well, the Essenes wrote an apocalyptic way where they use symbols that we really can read anything we want into. Ergo, that's the way Revelation is. Well, my point is Revelation is not depicted as apocalyptic literature, but it's called prophecy both in chapter 1 and in chapter 22 of Revelation. Okay, so the, the difference, of course, is John gives us the understanding. What's interesting about the Essenes is they couldn't conceive of how one man could be a prophet, priest, and king. So many of the Essenes in their apocalyptic writings, as they look forward to this eschatological day, they're looking for a prophet, priest, and a king. And so some of them espouse that there would be three messiahs. Isn't that interesting? So lo and behold, Jesus comes on the scene of history. And who is he? Well, he's prophet, like Moses, Deuteronomy 18.15. He's the king that comes after David, 2 Samuel 7.14. So prophet, priest. He's also the priest in the order of Melchizedek. So prophet, priest, and king, all in one person. So they couldn't conceive of that. And so that's where they got it wrong. But they knew that there would be a coming of the Messiah, at least three of them, they thought. Some thought there would be two, and he would take on 
one would take on two roles. But yeah, some of them are believing in three different uh, comings of a Messiah or Messiah. So yeah, you're right. They were looking forward to these things and they were wrestling with the text, I think, of Scripture that they had. Okay, so the big picture I want you to see is John 14 is a rapture passage. And therefore, when we say, well, why does John not incorporate the rapture in any of his writings? Well, he does. And that may be a reason why he doesn't feel the need to put it in the book of Revelation. He's already covered that. The book of Revelation begins with the wrath of God in Revelation chapter 6. So the focal point of the book of Revelation is the unveiling of this last 70th week of Daniel. It gives you all of the details of what the 70th week of Daniel looks like all the way from Revelation 6 to 19. So if you want the rapture passage, the rapture is in John 14. That may be a way of thinking about why John doesn't incorporate it elsewhere. Okay, now if my screen were working, I just simply had a screenshot. In fact, you can turn your Bibles where it says timing of the rapture in the 70th week. Notice I want to talk about the different views of the rapture. And if you look at that little diagram on your sheet, that is supposed to depict the 70th week of Daniel. So anytime I have two goalposts with one little mark in the middle, that's the 70th week of Daniel. The midpoint, of course, is the beginning of the Great Tribulation. What I want to do is talk to you about the various views of the tribulational rapture. Um, In other words, when does it occur? Does this tribulation or excuse me, does this rapture occur prior to the tribulation, at the midpoint of the tribulation, or at the end? If you believe that the rapture occurs prior to the tribulation period, you're called a pre-tribulational rapture uh, proponent. If you believe that it happens at the midpoint, you're mid, and at the end, it's post, post-tribulationalist. Now, there's also another view called pre-wrath, and I'll explain that. But what I want to do is I want you, by looking at that diagram... I want to begin by looking at the various views. And I want to begin by talking about post-tribulational view. The belief that somehow we are going to be raptured at the end of the 70th week. So if you have a little marker or a pen, you can just highlight the end of the 70th week and say this is post-trib. So keep in your mind, many scholars today believe that the church is going to be raptured at the end of the 70th week. Okay, so if you're a believer, you have to believe that the rapture is going to occur. The only question is, when is it going to occur? Now, let me give you some problems that I have, and I'll give you four of them. There's more than this, but let me give you four big problems with the post-trib view. Number one, how could, if the post-tribulational view was correct, that we're going to be raptured at the end of the 70th week, how could that be true in light of the fact that in 1 Thessalonians 5 verses 2 through 3, people are saying peace and safety when sudden destruction comes upon them at the beginning of the day of the Lord. Remember, Paul says the day of the Lord comes like a thief. While they're saying peace and safety, sudden destruction comes upon them. Now, think about the post-tribulationalist will have you believe that you've just lived through the worst time period of warfare ever. Think about the 70th week of Daniel. At the fourth seal judgment, you lose a quarter of the earth's population due to warfare. By the time you get to the fifth trumpet, you've lost another third. So over half the earth's population has died due to warfare. You've had demons released from the abyss. Are people going to be saying, well, this is peace and safety? Well, that's ridiculous. Well, that's ridiculous, you see. 
You're not, and by the way, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 through 3, where they say peace and safety, they're not wishing for it. They're declaring that they have it. Why? Because it comes suddenly. Now, by the way, that ties in to life as normal. So let me give you a second reason why the post, that, that's number one. That's reason number one. This doesn't make any sense. 1 Thessalonians, that the day of the Lord comes while they're saying peace and safety. That passage doesn't make any sense with a post-tribulationalist view. Tied into that is number two. In the 70th week, life as normal does not occur. Now, why is that important? Well, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew 24, verses 37 through 39. Let's turn to the Olivet Discourse. Matthew 24, 37 through 39. We'll talk about this relationship between the coming of the Son of Man and the days of Noah. Matthew 24, 37 through 39. Now, very briefly, when we talk about the Olivet Discourse, Bob and I are actually laying this out in a radio program that we're doing. And I've laid this out before when I taught through Mark 13, but let me just give you the highlights again. Matthew 24, verse 3, two questions are asked. When will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming? Jesus answers the second question first. He talks about signs. So from Matthew 24, 4, all the way to Matthew 24, 35, he talks about the signs, and they are all within the 70th week. When you get to verse 36 of Matthew 24, Jesus uses peri-day. That's a discourse marker. Remember in Greek, they didn't have paragraph breaks. They used discourse markers to show you, by the way, I'm going on to a new thought. So Matthew 24, 36, it literally can be rendered now concerning the day or the hour. In other words, when does the 70th week come? He says, no one knows the day or the hour. Not even the angels. Remember, it's only the Father who's in heaven. Okay, that follows then verse 37 right after that. So now Jesus is talking about when does the 70th week break forth? Verse 37, he says, for the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. Stop there for a moment. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people that are teachers on the radio. I've heard uh, one, uh, anyway, I won't mention the names, but they'll often say, aha, the days of Noah were wicked, and they were engaged in all sorts of licentiousness and immoral behavior. That must be the way it's going to be in the future. That's why Jesus is using it. Now, let me say this. There's always going to be sinful behavior amongst the unregenerate. That's not Jesus' point. Why? Well, notice what his point is. Notice in verse 38, he gives an explanatory four. This is Jesus' point in bringing up the days of Noah. He says, For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and given in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them away, so will the parousia, the coming of the Son of Man, be. Now, notice where it says they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Does anyone want to defend the idea that eating and drinking is sinful? Well, no. In fact, Paul says later that we're going to come to in our First Timothy studies, First Timothy 4, that if anyone prohibits eating and drinking of certain foods, it's what? It's a doctrine of demons. What about marrying? Is marrying sinful? Well, no. 
marrying is just part of normal life as well. In fact, if anyone d- denies or tries to forbid marriage, it's a doctrine of demons according to 1 Timothy 4 as well. Notice the giving in marriage, the eating, the drinking. That's not sinful behavior, but rather life as it always is. So what Jesus is saying is just as it was in the days of Noah, life was going on. They were eating, drinking, normal life. Sudden destruction came. That's the way it's going to be when the 70th week of Daniel comes. That's what it's going to be like at the coming of Christ. Well, how can you say after the entirety of the 70th week has transpired that normal life has been going on? Is normal life seen in the 70th week of Daniel? No. In fact, you have demons coming out of the abyss. You have a demonic army of how many strong? Isn't it two million or... It's, it's millions anyway. In Revelation 16, you have over half of the earth's population destroyed due to sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts. That is not life as it always is. So that's why believing in a post-tribulational rapture view, it just doesn't make any sense. Giving the, the whole thing that Jesus is describing in Matthew 24, 37 through 39 is life as it always is. Yeah, Brian. Uh, as the great Jim Palmer would say, uh, yeah. not the Orioles pitcher. Right. <laughs> uh, he, I'm glad he, you clarified that. Yeah, no, we, we know that the rapture is a picture of the Jewish wedding, and a lot of people have heard this before, but why would Jesus beat up on his bride before the wedding? Absolutely. Absolutely. We're promised the exemption from his wrath. And you're exactly right. That's what's up. By the way, we're not just taking this Jewish wedding motif and thrusting it upon the scriptures. Jesus appeals to it in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 25 when he talks about the, remember he talks about the virgins at the marriage. The, the groom is away and you have some of the women who aren't prepared. Why? Because the groom can come back at any time. Well, they weren't prepared, so what did they do? They missed the, the, the wedding feast. Absolutely. So Jesus uses it. John the Baptist is likened to the best man. Jesus in Scripture is likened to the groom. You have the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is imagery that is put upon by the biblical writers, not by you and I. So it really is there. So yeah, very well said. Why would Jesus Christ beat up on his bride prior to the the wedding feast? Absolutely. Very well said. So that's the second reason. Now, let's go to the third reason why the post-tribulational view is wrong. How can the parousia, remember that's the 70th week of Daniel, how can it come like a thief when in fact, if you believe in the post-tribulational rapture, you would have so many signs to tip you off? Remember, there's two terms for thief that are used in the New Testament. There's the kleptes and the loiteros. The loiteros is the one who kills you or beats you over the head with a... I'm sorry, not the later, the, that's the slander. The lystase is the one who beats you over the head with a club to take away your stuff. But the kleptase is the thief that relies upon stealth to get what he wants. When Jesus says his coming happens like a thief, when the Apostle Paul says the day of the Lord comes like a thief, the term that's being used is kleptase. It's where we get our term kleptomania for people who have the whatever, what would you call it, the, the problem where they can't stop stealing? That's where it comes from. So kleptes is used, meaning the day of the Lord comes with stealth. There's no 
sign or precursor to tip you off. Well, how could you say that if it occurs at the end of the 70th week? You've had all those signs. In fact, Jesus gives you one in Matthew 24, 15. He says, so when you see the abomination that causes desolation, what he's doing is he's warning people who are living in that time period. But that's the wrath of God. It's already come. So the point being, dear ones, is when the day of the Lord comes like a thief in the night, that means there's no precursor. I always used to tell the joke, if you knew when a thief was going to come, what if a thief said, look, you'll know that I'm going to rob you when you see my blue Cadillac I don't know why a thief would have a blue Cadillac, but it's the one that came to my mind, in your driveway. Well, you would simply wait until you saw a blue Cadillac, then you'd put 911 in, and you'd get your shotgun right, and you'd be all ready for him. But thieves don't give you any warning. That's the idea. Oh, yeah, I had the tuna fish sandwich. Yeah. You always have to have a tuna fish sandwich with you, too, as you're waiting for the thief. So the point is, you don't know when they're going to come. There's nothing to tip you off. So that's the third problem, I think, with a post-tribulational rapture view is the thief-like imagery doesn't make any sense. Fourth one, how can you and I be promised exemption from God's wrath and yet go through God's wrath? Remember the promise in Revelation 3.10 is I will keep you from the hour of trial. Okay, what if a, a teacher said, if you get straight A's on all of your tests, I will keep you from the final exam. Would you interpret that to mean that you would have to be a participant in the final exam, but no matter what grade you got at the end, you'd be preserved at the end? Well, no, you would say, I don't have to partake in that. I've gotten straight A's, so I don't have to be part of that anymore. Well, in the same way, when it says, I will keep you from, the verb tereo in the preposition ak means just that. It's preservation on the outside. Okay, by the way, um, Ryan, I had told Ryan about a wonderful article. And did you find that article helpful? Um, let me just tell everybody about it. There's an article you can get. It's by a British scholar. If you Google Thomas Edgar, and it's all about Revelation 3.10. And it's an article that shows you that the post-tribulationalist view is really laughable. Because the best scholar the post-tribulationalist had was a man named Robert Gundry. What he tried to claim is that in Revelation 3.10, where you have the tereo, keep, act from, he tried to claim that that phrase meant that the church was going to be brought through, preserved, and be taken out at the end. Well, as Thomas Edgar, the famous British scholar, says, that's a lot for one phrase to mean. Are you with me? No, it simply means to be kept from. It's preservation on the outside. And that article by Thomas Edgar is, to me, the best article out there if you want to read something about that issue. So, how can you be promised exemption from the time of God's wrath? Remember, it's the hour of trial. It's a time period you're going to be preserved from, Revelation 3.10. How can you be promised that and yet go through it? That seems to me, to me, a contradiction. Okay, now, the other viewpoint, so I gave you four reasons why I don't think the post-tribulationalist view has anything going for it. Let's talk about both the mid-trib in the pre-wrath view. For those of you unfamiliar with the pre-wrath view, and you know, we're almost out of time, I'll just introduce the pre-wrath view. What is the pre-wrath view? Well, the pre-wrath view believes that the rapture occurs sometimes, sometime in the last part of the Great Tribulation period. So it would be in the last three and a half years. Now for them, imminence comes into play only in the sense that you don't know when in that last three and a half years Jesus is going to come. 
So they believe in the pre-wrath view that, yes, we will be raptured prior to God's wrath, but they believe that God's wrath only begins sometime in the last three and a half years. Now, I'll let you hang with this for a little bit. You can mull on this because we're out of time. But I want you to think back at the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel, according to Revelation chapter 6, verse 8. Do you remember the judgment that came? Well, a quarter of the earth died due to sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts. A fourth of the earth. That's the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel. The pre-rathers agree that's the beginning of the 70th week. Now, why is that important? Because that same judgment came upon Jerusalem in Ezekiel 14. And according to Ezekiel 14, 19, that was the wrath of God. So my question is, why is that no longer the wrath of God when it's used on the unregenerate Gentiles in the 70th week of Daniel? The reason they don't want that to be the wrath of God is because it doesn't fit with their view. You see, at the end of the day, we as pre-tribulationalists are pre-wrathers too. We simply believe that the wrath begins at the inception of the 70th week. The big debate should be regarding the timing of the rapture. When does the wrath come? Because if you're promised the exemption from God's wrath, and you are, Romans 5, 9, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, Revelation 3, 10, you're promised exemption from that wrath. The only question is, when does the wrath come? So if you can prove that the wrath begins at the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel, guess what? You can't be there. That's the major problem with the pre-wrath in the mid-trib positions. Now, we'll talk more about that uh, next time, and then we'll try to finish the remaining verses. We'll be done with the book of Revelation, and then we're going to do some systematic theology, Bob and I together. And once we get through that packet... Oh, by the way, Bob and I did radio this past week, and I want to mention, we talk about Bob's book, The Emergent Church, and why don't you give a plug for it, Bob? Uh, we were on with uh, Lee Michaels, and it was, it was uh, exciting for me because Lee Michaels was there to introduce a debate with Doug Padgett. And when I wrote this book in 2009, Doug, the Doug Padgett debate was one of the narratives in here that's a thread through some of the chapters. And so to be back on the radio in the studio was really a blessing to me. We've got the yeah. book. I've done it. Uh, with, mainly, I should say Jessica did, but uh, it's republished, this time with a new introduction, several in, uh, a scripture index, topic index, things that weren't in the first one, and it's at Amazon.com. So yeah. that's a great thing because I don't have to have my front porch full of books. <laughs> okay. But I have a handful of them. So if somebody from church here wants to buy a few f- or buy a book from me, I'll sell them for 10 bucks. Oh, amen. Directly to me uh, here at church. I, I don't, again, like I said, I don't want to have cases on my front porch. Right. Or I should say Diane doesn't want me to have cases on the front porch. <laughs> <laughs> Bob, would you mind praying for us? Okay. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for Eric and his uh, willingness to spend a lot of time really studying and understanding Bible prophecy and for making these categories clear in our minds with a lot of scriptures to contemplate. May we be preaching the gospel to all people as we prepare and look forward 
to your return, the rapture, and we do say, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Bob. Yeah. We want to keep pressing.